Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a fellow at AEI. Our friend Julia Joja from the Middle East Institute is out today. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Alex Goncharenko, a member of Ukraine's Verkhovna Rada Parliament from Odessa. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Alex, um, we met last week in Kiev, had a really um, broad-ranging conversation about your own experience in Ukrainian politics, about you know your interactions with 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 Russian security services, and 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 then we obviously talked about the situation on the front lines of 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 of, of this war for Ukraine's independence. I think what our listeners should know about you is is that you are an MP for Odessa, which is a majority Russian-speaking city, which really does occupy an important place, I suppose, in in sort of you know Russian imagination. You originally served with the party of the of the of the regions, but since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea, you had you know, several attempts on your life by Russian security services, being a critic uh, of uh, of Russian expansionism. I just want to cite one example, which which is on your on the Wikipedia page, which we sort of discussed briefly last week. That in 2017, you were it was reported that you were kidnapped by unidentified attackers in Odessa, and later you said in a televised interview that you were in a safe place, and in fact. The kidnapping was something that Ukrainian security services put together so that they could actually capture people who were going after you and going after your life. And and that sort of separatist terrorist group operating on this hour was captured by, 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 by Ukrainian security services, uh, neutralized, yet I suppose your family and your you know close ones went through a rather fearful couple of hours, not knowing we are whereabouts and assuming like the rest of the world. Indeed, I remember this episode reported on you know CNN, BBC, and elsewhere that you were indeed had been indeed in, 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 in kidnapped and 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 and, and maybe, maybe 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 killed. I wonder if you could just ru- you know run us briefly through you know the, the sort of history, your own history with the Russians, like you know from from being somebody who was. Broadly speaking, you know, not overly critical of of Russia, and, and and who is himself coming from a Russian-speaking background, you know, like becoming somebody who is very much, you know, who very much carries a target on 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 his back, and and perhaps until this day has to, you know, fear for for his life and be very 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 cautious. Uh, I think giving our listeners the sort of sense of how ruthless. And, and and just unscrupulous the Russians are when it comes to their critics and opponents, I think would be would be a good good place to start that conversation. Yeah, thank you. Hello, Dalibor. Hello, Giselle. And uh, thank you very much for your invitation to your podcast. You have a great name, Eastern Front. I, I think that is absolutely good name because today we have uh, several fronts of the war between free world and not free world. In one of them, and the hottest one for the moment, is the Eastern Front, and Ukraine is in the East, on this Eastern Front. 
So I like your name, and it is very good for just for today and uh, for these days. Uh, yeah, I was born in Odessa, which is the biggest city on the Black Sea. I consider both languages, Ukrainian and Russian, my mother tongues. By my first language was a Russian language. I'm sure that I know more poems of Russian poets than Putin and all his face bear entourage. I have no even doubts about this. Now, I always uh, was fond of Russian culture. I thought that Russia is a big friend of Ukraine, all these brotherhood stories. I believed in uh, Europe from Vladivostok to Lisbon. Uh, then I realized it was much later than for Putin and for Russian elites. Uh, it, it should be like that uh, Lisbon should be like Vladivostok. And for me, it was absolutely opposite. So that's, uh, that was my background. And I was in 2014, I was already in politics in regional one. I was first deputy chairman of Odessa Regional Council, first vice president. I had been elected uh, as a member of Party of Regions, which was considered also the party which supports good relationships between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but at the same time, this party was saying that the future of Ukraine is in Europe. So now it seems for me absolutely opposite things. But at that moment, it was not. And then uh, the critical moment, uh, I, I, always di I always didn't like Putin because, I don't know, I, I, I didn't like KGB guys. Uh, and I was always like for freedom and things like this. But Putin and Putin, okay, I mean, that's uh, the president of another country, but this country can be a good friend of us. In 2014, everything changed. And it was just one moment because that was a, a revolution of dignity in Ukraine. First, it was against uh, President Yanukovych and his decision to change the direction of Ukraine from pro-European, because before Ukraine was preparing association agreement and moving this uh, track to some new union with Russians. Uh, and uh, I was completely against of this. Then Yanukovych uh, ran away from the country because of their pricing in the capital. I was in Odessa mostly that time. And immediately after he ran away, I understood that something bad is starting to happen in Crimea. I knew many people in Crimea personally. Odessa is uh, also on the Black Sea, like Crimea, but it's more to the west, but not too far. So that's why I went to Crimea. And it happened that that day, it was, I think, February 27 of 2014, maybe 28. Uh, and uh, at this day, the airport of Simferopol, which is the capital of Crimea, was occupied by Russian military units. And it happened on my eyes. I just came to Crimea and I saw it by my own eyes. And I was, it was one moment, you know, you don't need some, some, I mean, at that moment, I understood that they started the war against Ukraine, and that they started occupation of Crimea. And from this day, uh, now it's already the ninth year, like I realized that Russian Empire is Russian Empire, and there are no any brothers, they are absolutely barbarians. Uh, yes, there are there are normal people among them. Definitely, there are there is a great Russian culture. Nobody is yeah, I, that is true. 
But in general, this society is ill. They have this imperialistic way of mind, militaristic way of mind, and they want to build the empire. And they do not respect either international, neither international law, nor their neighbors and any rules. And after this, every day was just more and more convincing me in this. So from this day, I was doing everything I can to stop them in Odessa because they started there. After Crimea, they were successful there. They started, they went to Donbass. It's in eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, And they also tried to uh, attack uh, in hybrid manner Odessa. It was 2014, spring. We were fighting with them in Odessa, uh, and uh, they lost their case uh, with the tra- their, their probably uh, the apotheosis of all this was May 2, when 48 people in Odessa um, died because of the clashes in the city between pro Russian and pro Ukrainian uh, mobs and uh, people. and. Uh, yeah, it's clear that I was on pro-Ukrainian side. From that time, they started to call me Butcher from Odessa. I didn't kill anybody, even opposite as a doctor. Uh, my first education is medical. I worked in ambulance. I even helped people near the trade union house, giving them first aid. But uh, I, yeah, I was one of like speakers of um, this and. Uh, after this, they organized yeah, three times. They, two times they tried to kill me, one time to kidnap. The first one was quite funny. It was immediately after May 2. They addressed to people who were in pro-Russian uh, camp, and uh, they first there were two guys, two friends. First, they gave them uh, some leaflets to distribute, then something else. And then they gave them a gun. And I think $1.5,000, I don't remember exactly, and told them to kill me. They were shocked because they they were absolutely civilians. And uh, one of them was barman. Another one was kind of, I don't remember, some kind of a walker. But so they they just uh, drank some vodka and went to the police and, and gave up. So that was a funny attempt. But it was the first. The second was in one year. They were preparing some uprising in, in Odessa region, so-called Odessa People Republic. They like this name, so Odessa People Republic, Donetsk People Republic, Luhansk People Republic. Yeah, they're like Soviet-style, so KGB-style, so they want to be stylish in this. And uh, they were preparing it, and they were like, this time it was more serious because they reached veterans of Afghan war pro-Russian, uh, pro-Russian oriented, uh, so they knew what to do with the weapons. They weaponized them, they gave them money, uh, and uh, they were preparing a number of uh, attacks, explosion of bridges, attack on the, some military point, and also uh, in their plan was killing of near 10 people, I remember. One of them was me. Fortunately, uh, all of this was found by Ukrainian security service. They were all arrested, and that uh, that did not happen. And the last one, that what you told in 2017, you already told the whole story. I just uh, would add a little bit to the end of the story uh, for understanding that it is not, you know, like some 
uh, because uh, first uh, they were saying that it's not true. That is a special operation of Ukrainian Secret Service. Nobody needs this Gincherenko and others, I mean, like this. But after this, uh, Kremlin put the name of the organizer of this, uh, of two organizers of this, uh, to the list for exchange on Ukrainian prisoners of war. So they just took them to Russia to prevent them to, to be in Ukrainian prison because uh, they would receive at least 10 years in prison. And they took them and they uh, still in Russia. Uh, one of them definitely is in Russia, other I don't know. So uh, that, that's the story. Yeah, that's my personal story with them. Also in 2015, when uh, in near Kremlin was killed Boris Nemtsov, I knew him personally. Uh, and he was not always Russian liberals, are real liberals. But Boris Nemtsov was real liberal and was a real, real friend of Ukraine and a great person. And uh, when he was killed, I went to Moscow. At that time, we still had uh, air connection, so I fly from Odessa to Moscow to take part in the events in his memory. And on the march, uh, which was uh, prepared first against war, it was prepared by Nimtsov, but after his killing, it became the march in his memory. Uh, I was arrested, despite the fact that I was already a member of the parliament and member of the parliamentary assembly of the Council of Europe. They took me to police department of Kitai Gorat in Moscow, beat me. They just spit it on my diplomatic passport and immunity and things like this. But after big scandal started, in seven, eight hours, they gave possibility to Ukrainian diplomats to take me from police department. And next day, they sent me out of Russia. So uh, that, uh, that, that, that's my personal story with them. But it's not about personal story. It's about that uh, uh, they're real, and all the situation now shows that they're real barbarians, crazy people, crazy regime, uh, neo-fascistic, and I can prove it. It's from scientific point of view, neo-fascistic regime, starting from the way they organize the economy, it absolutely incorporates this style, fascist style, continuing with their propaganda continuing with the genocide which they now organized against Ukrainians. Again, I can prove it uh, with the taking, you can take the United Nations Convention on Prevention of Genocide and all uh, points which is showing that it is genocide are on the place, unfortunately, in Ukraine, all of them. So all criteria. So uh, they are a real threat to the whole world. Uh, because uh, these crazy people, they, all, they also have nuclear weapons, and they are blackmailing the world with these nuclear weapons, uh, and they are threatening the world with these nuclear weapons uh, like all the time. So they are real danger. And I think today the world is on the crucial moment of this battle, like I started Eastern Frontier, between free world and not free world. And other dictatorships are now watching very closely what will happen next. And uh, I think that we all should unite uh, and around one idea that free world should win. We couldn't be just in some kind of equilibrium with them. Uh, there are two ways. The first way that free world will shrink and uh, retreat. And the second way that free world will expand. So it's clear what I am for. So I'm sure we should go this way. I'm interested to know, you know, the, the Ukrainian security services are 
increasingly in the news. I think President Zelensky has now replaced the uh, leader of the SPU. What is your view of the of the SPU? Let me let me ask the question in an open ended way. Yeah, it's a very wide question. Uh, first of all, about changing of leader, I don't know. There are rumors about this, but still, uh, he, the, lead, the chef of uh, Ukrainian Secret Service is on his place. What I can tell you, if they two times saved my life. One time my life, one time at least my help. I mean, so I just, I can't criticize That's them. That's too pretty good. Uh, yeah, got like that. Yeah, it would be, from me, something absolutely wrong. I think like everywhere, there are different people there. Uh, definitely Russians had a, a lot of agents there. That is for sure. Because uh, Ukrainian Secret Service, uh, all the generation, they came from KGB. They started in the same universities, the same schools of KGB in Moscow. They worked together, shoulder to shoulder. And definitely some of them after this became a real Ukrainian patriots, and some of them not. And uh, definitely Russia, and I think Russia still has agents inside Ukrainian Secret Service. It's one of the challenges that we have. It's one of the threats that we have. But many, many officers, especially younger officers, real patriots, now they are dying for Ukraine, they are fighting for Ukraine, and they are doing great job. They stopped many Russian attacks after the start of the invasion. I mean, attacks in the cities, attacks against secret objects. So I'm proud of them. And I'm sure that uh, by, by time, uh, less and less Russian agents will be there and more and more patriots will be there. Also, there is like uh, in Ukraine also have a big issue of corruption. That's also true. And uh, unfortunately, it's inside law enforcement uh, bodies too, like Secret Service. Uh, but again, I think the situation is getting better. So where we have, where the situation is improving each year. And in some time, our... But also, don't forget that our Secret Service is really on the front line. I mean, they have real experience, not like many of their colleagues from other countries. So I think that in some time, Ukrainian Secret Service can become one of the best in the world. Like the Ukrainian army is becoming one of the best in the world, just because they have experience and they will be and they will came through very serious things. I think that's, that's an important sort of point you, you, you just made for years, um, Ukrainian military and I presume also some intelligence services have been receiving training from their Western partners. And I suppose after this war, it will be the Ukrainians who will likely be training. Yeah, absolutely. Defenses and, and defense forces and, and, and intelligence services. I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about how you think the war is going. So clearly, both the intelligence services that foiled these, you know, many attempts at killing President Zelensky, or there were these infiltrators in, in, in Kiev at the early begin at, at the early stages of the war. But 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 Ukrainian defense forces at, at at large just 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 really played a hugely important role in, in, in repelling the, the early stages of the invasion. But now we are in a different phase of the war in which I mean Russians really seem to be throwing the kitchen sink 
uh, the problem, at least in the in 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 the Donbas, using you know overwhelming force of 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 of, of artillery to make you know small but but steady gains in places like Severodonetsk and elsewhere. And I mean, Ukrainians do have to make choices about, you know, which places to defend, about where to concentrate their forces, where to push back. Uh, President Zelensky, I think, said that uh, August will be decisive in the war for, 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 for Donbass. You know, like relative to your own expectations, let's say a few weeks ago, What's your sense of how things are going, and and what, what what do you sort of predict will happen going forward in terms of you know Ukrainian success in repelling the Russian invader? First of all, I should say you that I am quite bad Nostradamus and Cassandra <laughs> because uh, me personally before February twenty four, and you see that I am not absolutely optimistic about Russians, but even uh, with all my experience and even including my personal experience. I was not waiting for what had happened. I waited for some escalation on Donbass, uh, some uh, escalation of hybrid war, cyber attacks, propaganda, I don't know, but not tanks on the roads, missile attacks, and all this, I mean, something like unbelievable from the Second World War things, uh, which I could not imagine uh, that it could happen with my own country. That's why it's so difficult for me to make predictions. What I think today, uh, first, that the war is, I can't say is on the critical stage, because in this war, every, every stage was critical. When Russians were coming into Kiev, in the first evening, they already uh, came into in the city. But fortunately for us, it was the first and the, and the last moment, but it was. And at that moment, I, I joined, uh, we, we, in the morning, we voted for martial law. Then uh, I, I refused to evacuate. So then I went and received my Kalashnikov. Then I joined Territorial Defense Battalion. And I was sitting near, not far from the parliament. And uh, we were ready to go to, to fight and to defend the parliament with weapons in our hands. And it was not the best feeling in my life. I mean, because we understood that it's Russian tanks and we with Kalashnikovs. So it wasn't very pleasant. So every day was critical. Definitely Putin already, I can tell it, would not achieve his goals in Ukraine. But does he understand it? Uh, I am not sure. I think, I, and I see that he continues the war, and I see that he still wants to achieve some goals. Maybe not to take Kiev, because last time in Petersburg, when he was, was like big public speech, he already said that Ukraine came to 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 Soviet Union with just to Russian Empire with just three regions. Kiev, it's a bullshit, like always, but. Like all the, his historian uh, stories, like he's the best, the, the best, I mean, in quotes, uh, the worst historian in the world, I mean, with all his conspiracy theories. But it shows that Kiev, he, probably he decided that, you know, he, he couldn't take Kiev. But maybe he wants to take, I'm sure that Odessa is in his plans. I'm sure that Kharkiv is in, in his plans. Donbass definitely is in his plans. And they changed the tactics, yes. So the first, it was a, an attempt of Blitzkrieg, 
uh, on the basis of a thought that many Ukrainians are waiting for Russian army and uh, Ukrainian that, that the resistance will not be big. And that was a complete mistake. The resistance is absolutely, I mean, enormous. All nation is uh, fighting, the whole nation. But Putin was thinking another way. So after this attempt failed, they changed the tactics. Now they're using the tactics of scorched earth of the First World War, just destroying city by city, town by town, and by this moving ahead. Uh, and they still advancing. I can't tell you that we stopped Russia. No, it is not the fact. They're still advancing. Yes, they lost the battle for Kiev. They retreated from it. They lost the battle for Kharkiv, or at least the first one, and they retreated from it. But on Donbass, they're still advancing, and we can't stop them for the moment. And uh, for how long could they continue? I don't know. Economically, they look good. They receive $1 billion per day for fossil fuel, and it still continues. With this money, they can afford this war. Speaking about military, I am not a military expert. I should tell you, I am, I am a civilian person. So it's hard for me to estimate. But look, speaking about there, that they lost more than 30,000 people. I mean, for Putin, it's nothing. They have, for him, he doesn't count people. He has more than 140 million people. All of them, in his mind, can be soldiers. Uh, at least m m half of them with the Y chromosome. And uh, that means that they can continue. Speaking about uh, probably more problematic for them is their losses in uh, war tactic, tech, techniques, in tanks, in artillery, in uh, um, uh, helicopters, fighters. They lost a lot of them. But still they have a lot. Uh, because they already uh, starting, they opened old Soviet depots with old Soviet weapon. It's not very effective, but it's a lot of it, many many of it. Because Soviet Union was preparing for a big world war for decades, and they have a lot of this iron. Part of it still is operating. So, I don't wait for a quick end. I think that the war will continue at least till the end of this year, maybe till the late autumn. I don't know. To tell you why I think so, it's even this difficult. Uh, also, I think that in some moment, definitely Russian forces will be exhausted and they will stop. But at this moment, Ukraine will counterattack. But what will be the result of this counterattack? I can't predict. It, it depends from many things, in, and including... Uh, the supplies of the Western weapon, Western weaponry, which is for the moment not enough. I mean, the best estimation I am all often asked is it? Uh, I said, I mean, is it a lot or not? It's it's not enough. That's for sure. I can tell you when it will be enough. You will see when we will stop Russians. So when we are still can stop them, it means that there is not enough weapon weaponry. That's all. But stopping the Russians is one thing. Reclaiming U Ukrainian territory uh, in the Donbass in the south is another. 
There's only now talk here in Washington and Western capitals about supplying armor, longer range air defenses, the things that would be necessary for a counter, a real counter offensive, you know, beyond the use of longer range artillery and infantry weapons. How important or how patient do you think you and your people will be with a West that likes to, you know, hand out weaponry in such small doses? I mean, I, there isn't much alternative, I understand, but at least uh, I think for people like Dalibor and me, it's very frustrating that we're not looking ahead and creating that capability that would really make a difference so that when the Russians are exhausted, uh, shortly thereafter, they get smashed. We will be patient because we don't have any other option. Right. <laughs> I mean, we are yeah. thankful for everything we are receiving because it would be much worse if we would not receive anything. Right. So we are very thankful for all we are receiving, but definitely we are also frustrated because especially, for example, end of March, it looked like we can kick off Russians from Ukraine. They were retreating, they were disorientated, but then they rebuilt, regrouped, refreshed, and continued again and with new tactics. So we lost this moment because we were not armed enough. I hope, uh, I mean, what, what in general I can tell you, that the problem is that the free world is not united around one idea about how this war should end. And this idea sounds like Ukraine should win. That is very simple and easy, but unfortunately, not of all Western leaders are really saying it and thinking about it and, and thinking this way. For example, uh, Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, is saying Ukraine should win. Andrzej Duda, President of Poland, is saying Ukraine should win. Ursula von der Leyen, Head of European Commission, saying Ukraine should win. And after this, Olaf Scholz is coming and saying Putin should not win. And then Macron is coming and saying we should not humiliate Putin. And that is, you know, the two different things. Ukraine should win and Putin should not win. So first, it, the, the victory should be in the head. And unfortunately, in the head of the West, there is still, there, there are a lot of still, a lot of fog. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, a lot of strange ideas about these things that who should not win but should not lose humiliated or not. It's so strange. I mean, if you are killing somebody, you should not be humiliated. You should be punished. That's the whole story. And it's not about humiliation or not. Russia should be punished. Putin should be punished. In any way, international security is uh, lost. All rules are lost. Uh, we are in, in the wild jungles again in uh, wild jungles with uh, wolf, with tiger, you know, with uh, other big animals, <laughs> predators, which are dangerous. You need a big gun. Uh, yeah. So that's from what sh should we start? We should start from the clear understanding of this. And after this, there will be no question to give to Ukraine high marches or not. Definitely, yes, if Ukraine should win. To give a long-range missiles to them, yes, because Ukraine should win. 
to give fighters? Yes, because Ukraine should win. So this answer on this question is answer on all questions for me. And we are waiting and we are doing the best we can. And thanks to you that by discussing issues like this and maybe to your listeners who will listen to us and make some decisions after this, we are changing the situation. It is already much better than it was before February 24. I can't say that we don't have progress. We have it, but we need more. I think there is. I think you put the finger right, like on on, on what, what the problem is in the West. That on the one hand, uh, you know, people from President Macron and Chancellor Scholz to President Biden don't want Russia to win, but they somehow can't fully commit themselves to the notion that they want Russia to lose. And you have this sort of muddle through in which we sort of, you know, carefully dose the supplies of, of, of weapons so as not to provoke the Russians for fear of, I suppose, nuclear or, or chemical escalation or... Yeah, and by this, and by doing like this, they are provoking Russians. That's the, that's the story. That is exactly the way to provoke Russians, because as for any predator, weakness provokes. One should not poke the bear, one should shoot the bear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said wolf, no, bear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> have bear and tiger. I think you're right. So before we let you go, um, and I wanted to sort of conclude on a somewhat more optimistic note. So we recently had the EU Council meeting, which made the decision to start accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova which is something that the Ukrainians were asking for for a very long time. This is where the whole thing started to a certain degree. Yeah, absolutely. Really is a great step forward. I mean, at the same time, it is only the beginning. Uh, it's a beginning of a process that might lead, and I hope it does lead to Ukraine's accession and full membership in the EU. But that membership might still be you know, far away and is still subject to the vagaries of you know, politics in Paris and Berlin. What's the mood in, in, in Kiev when it comes to, to this council decision? Is there jubilation? Is there the understanding that, you know, it's still going to be very difficult and, 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 and perhaps a sort of long journey? Thank you for your question. It's a very important moment for us. Uh, for us, the big battle is won. It's not the war that is won, but the big battle is won. And it is a very important battle. And we are very happy with this decision. Yes, ahead there is a long-term period, probably, but we will try to do it as quick as possible and things like this. But in general, that is a historical thing. Uh, that is the answer on the question, does Ukraine have future? Do we have the light at the end of the tunnel? And the answer is clear and definite, yes. So that is so important for us, and that is also very important for Europe. I believe in this, because it shows that despite all the problems with leadership and things we discussed before, but there are values in this project which still matter, and nobody can be just to be blind on them. And that is so important. That says that this European project is alive. That is a revitalization of this project. And that is a new breath of this project. And uh, we can't underestimate what had happened. That is very important. That is a very big loss for Putin. And that is a very big loss for uh, not free world. And that is a very big victory for free world. 
and uh, we are very happy about this. I think we should enjoy this moment of Ukrainian blue skies and sunshine, uh, yeah. which we don't get so much on the Eastern Front, to end on a happy note. Alex, thank you so much. I think we could have gone on for much, much longer, and we should definitely have you back on the podcast. I would be happy to. One specific subject we haven't touched on today, which is the blockade of Odessa and, and this whole question of Black Sea security, on which I think you are very well positioned to comment. So, so we should do that later. Uh, maybe this month or or, or, or the following month. It's important. But for, for now, from Dalibor Rohaj. It is held Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Alex Goncharenko. You can find more content and all the episodes on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating and reviewing us. Obviously, you should have already been subscribed to the show. And for that, we thank you and say goodbye until next time.